This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Global Affairs Associates to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Global Affairs Associates for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that is not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. This is ESG Decoded, and I'm Amanda Shea. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Jill Ivanko, President, CEO, and Director of Chart Industries, a leading global manufacturer of highly engineered equipment used throughout the liquid gas supply chain of atmospheric, hydrocarbon, and industrial gases. Chart Industries may not be a household name, but its products are enabling the energy transition, improving access to clean water, and making our everyday lives more sustainable and enjoyable. Jill is the winner of the 2020 ExxonMobil Powerplay Rainmaker Award, the 2020 S&P Global Platts Energy Award for Chief Trailblazer, and the World LNG Executive of the Year 2020. In other words, she's a rock star, and we are so lucky to have her on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you on ESG Decoded to have this conversation, so thank you. Let's just jump right into it. I mean, Chart is a leading manufacturer of highly engineered equipment at the forefront, really, of the energy transition. Your products are helping customers in their transition to cleaner forms of energy, improving clean water access around the world. But just love to hear from you and your unique position. What are the big trends you're seeing? Yeah, definitely ESG sustainability is the number one trend that we're seeing around the globe. And it's various, uh, it's different by various regions in terms of what the focus is. But generally, uh, what we're seeing is a nexus of clean power, clean water, clean food, and clean industrials. And that plays out in a variety of different ways where there's a movement from traditional coal on the energy side to various different other options, whether that's hydrogen or electric or solar or wind. On the clean water side, I always discuss the fact that a lot of the customers that we have are trying to address regions of the world that many of their population does not have access to clean water or any power. And so if you're looking at that, how do you address both water and power needs? And so a lot of the projects that we're working with our customers on relate to that. And then you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum for some of our applications, which are on the food and beverage side, where we help our customers reduce the amount of plastic that they use in bottles, whether that's a water bottle or in cans for beverages like that, or even one of our customers is Cargill, where we help them reduce the amount of plastic used in the bottling of their olive oil product. So a really wide range, and I think it's just super top of mind for both the public and the private sector, and no longer is it just getting lip service, it's really being translated into actions by many companies in the world. Do you see this demand equally spread around the the world or are there different regional differences? 
It's definitely happening globally. So there's activity happening regardless of what region that you're in. It is regionally different in terms of what types of decisions are being made and how quickly they're being made to roll out. So for example, um, if you're looking at a region like Vietnam, where uh, historically it's been primarily coal for power generation. And so a movement toward a more sustainable or cleaner and greener answer is LNG. Whereas if you look in many of the EU countries, LNG is being reviewed as whether that's clean enough. And so there's discussion around moving to green hydrogen, as an example. Or if you look at the states, it's which type of projects are being done and how do they work together with existing infrastructure. So while there's regional differences, the themes are all the same globally. And what I always found amazing about CHART is that I'll say you're molecule agnostic, whether it's LNG or hydrogen or oxygen or helium or the molecule, you have a a solution for it. (laughs) Yep, you got it. (laughs) And I think that's what is unique about, like, I think as you described, being about at this nexus is that you're able to service clients and all these different industries, no matter what they're, they're looking at. With, there's so much buzz about hydrogen. I think you get asked this all the time, but I feel like it's like the hottest thing. You just throw hydrogen in something and everyone wants to know more. Is that buzz that I'm feeling? Do you feel it too? Or is that my little bubble here in Houston? I don't know. No, no. You're, you're experiencing the hydrogen hype, as I call it, which it really isn't hype anymore. And it's interesting because like you said, you know, we, we pride ourselves on being molecule agnostic, and it is my belief that it's going to be a hybrid of solutions through the green energy and clean energy transition and destination. So I don't personally think that there is going to be any one power source that dominates the world's energy. And that's a good thing. What that allows for is various different projects. It allows for the economics to work. It also allows for the world to, again, utilize that existing infrastructure. I mean, I, I like to say to people, do you really think anybody is going to go out and rip out every existing gas station that's there and replace it with whatever molecule they've decided is the molecule of the future? And it's just not going to happen that way. So on the hydrogen side, what we are seeing is, is very regional in terms of what type of hydrogen, whether that's the colors of hydrogen or liquid or gaseous hydrogen. And it's come a long way in the last 12 to 14 months. I always tell the story that back in 2018, I talked about uh, hydrogen fueling stations in California on one of our earnings calls, and just nobody asked a single question. And now, like you said, I can't get away from the questions on hydrogen. But that's a good thing, because what's happening is the evolution is, you know, 12 months ago or 14 months ago, when hydrogen started getting talked about a ton, What we found was there were really ambitious, but in many cases, unrealistic or not pragmatic projects being discussed. How do you go from A to Z and do so effectively? And now the conversations with hundreds and hundreds of customers that are working on hydrogen are really around, how do I do this in a scalable fashion and how do I do it in a cost-effective fashion? And that's been a big movement over the last two quarters or six months in what we've seen. And we're seeing a very high level of demand on the production side. So we think about the hydrogen value chain in three pieces, production, the storage and transport, and then the end users. And a lot of the demand we're seeing is for producing the molecule at the front end of that value chain. And then how do you move and store it? So those are kind of the three key areas of hydrogen that are active right now. 
but it's a uh, it's an interesting space. It still has a long way to go in terms of being cost effective, and so that's part of what I think you're going to see in the middle part of this decade. I think the other interesting thing, and it's funny, this year it's all about hydrogen. I felt like the year before it was all about carbon capture. I know you play in that space as well. You know, what are you seeing there? That I feel like. Again, it's funny, the conferences this year about hydrogen, the same conferences like, you know, last year, you know, before COVID was all about carbon capture. What are the trends you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I think I actually think carbon capture is, I say, about a year behind hydrogen in terms of how it's evolving from a commercial perspective. But what's really interesting is it's facing the same types of challenges. So how do you entice the people that own these assets that are producing CO2 to actually capture it? And what do you do with it when you capture it? So I think those, those types of challenges around the economics are a key part of the discussions that are happening right now. It is also my belief that the 2030 targets, both in the government as well as private sector, cannot be achieved without carbon capture being a part of that answer. And so I think that this decade will be uh, really important for moving from demonstration scale projects to larger scale carbon capture projects. There's also a variety of different options in carbon capture. So if you're talking about post-combustion, you're really talking about amine solutions or cryogenic solutions and coming down to the answer being dollars per ton and what makes sense. And carbon capture is also very regional because what do you, where do you put it? In the States, you can put it underground. In Europe, there's not really an easy answer to put something below ground. And so how that CO2 is being used once it's captured is the pretty big part of the conversations. Now we have an investment, a really cool investment in a company called Earthly Labs, where it's a small scale carbon capture unit that's used in food and beverage and agriculture primarily. So you're talking about customers that have, like let's take a craft brewery, they need CO2 to make the beer and then they generate CO2 when they're making the beer. So why not capture it? It's beverage purity at 99.9% and then reuse it into your product. So now you don't have to go outside and spend 50,000 a year on CO2. And you're also doing something that's cleaner and greener. And that has taken hold really well commercially because it is a, an affordable answer. It's $100,000 or so and can be installed in five days versus $100 million and takes three years to install. So I think those are the challenges that we'll face, but I am very bullish on carbon capture being part of the solution. I think that's fascinating too. It really brings that idea of circularity back into the thing of, you know, does CO2 have to be a waste of the product of the process? No, it doesn't actually. You can actually bring it back into it and have a circular process that we never, I I never imagined, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was even uh, as far back as I can remember, it wasn't really talked about as part of, as an option. And there's a few niche companies out there that have been doing it for a decade or so, but it's certainly now kind of coming into its own. What about on the clean water side? I think that's something that we don't think as much as clean energy, but I think it's such an important part of the conversation. And especially I think this summer, as we're looking kind of Texas and West, a the droughts that we're facing, I think we're all have a greater awareness of water. Definitely. I'm in complete agreement with you, Amanda, that it, and I think water in general, water, water treatment, desalination is an underappreciated story within this clean transition, the sustainability discussion. And to me, it, it, it hits the E and the S in ESG, because you're talking about 
you know, people's lives that are directly impacted by the access to clean water or the access to water period. And we're starting to see that become more prominent. And that's really a very recent trend. And it's not just in the United States where municipalities are looking to address the cleanliness factor in their water sources, but it's also outside of the United States in places like Brazil and places like Egypt, places like sub-Saharan Africa, where we're seeing projects go in part because they're being driven by politics. So if there's, for example, an upcoming presidential election and clean water, access to water is a running platform. That's an interesting dynamic. And to me, that's okay. You know, there's various different drivers for countries to move toward some more sustainability. So I don't get upset for what the impetus is behind it, as long as it's actually taken through to completion. The other thing is really, like you said, the droughts and the access for agriculture or just drinking water. So desalination is another trend that we're starting to see increase dramatically. And we have both the process itself to clean the water or to desal the water, as well as the equipment that goes into water treatment facilities. And I, I just close my water answer with, you know, something that I talk about, and it hasn't been seen yet. So we'll see if my guess is right. But if you think about water treatment facilities, wastewater facilities, they tend to be next to industrial manufacturing facilities and plants. And the amount of energy and CO2 that's actually kept could be captured in wastewater treatment processes could therefore then be used in an in industrial manufacturing location. So this repurposing in this nexus that we talk about of these things working together, I think you're going to see a lot more of that as this decade unfolds. You mentioned acquisitions earlier and I would love to hear a little bit about from you about what is the role of ESG in acquisitions? It's something that we get asked about when a client is looking to be acquired, perhaps. But I would love to hear from the opposite side, too. Can you tell me more about how you think about ESG in acquisitions? We, we definitely do. And I think everyone's pretty aware that if you're looking at it from an investor standpoint, looking at companies, so our shareholders, ESG is just as important to them now as your financial metrics are. And it's important that, you know, it's one of the things that we've learned over the course of the last few years is while we were always doing these things, we didn't do a good job of packaging up and articulating it to our shareholders and to the world of all these great things that were happening. How does someone understand what our ESG story is? And it's the same from our perspective on acquisitions and inorganic deals is, is the ESG is a part of our evaluation of not just the company or the product application, but also the leadership team. And what we found is in, we're pretty disciplined around where we play on the inorganic side. And so these naturally check the box when it comes to applications or products because they're being used in this cleaner and more sustainable type of applications. But where the rubber really hits the road is the G and the governance. And how do you think about having the right culture? How do you think about having the right diverse set of perspectives on your team to make the company a better place? And is the company thinking that way? I mean, and those are, those are really key attributes to what used to just be, hey, you hit your numbers, you got a really nice forecast and your product works well. Well, no, it's, it's, it's much more than that. And what we have found is the most successful leadership teams that we have purchased have a diverse set of individuals leading the business and a diverse set of perspectives because that's really how you challenge the norm and get to better answers. Tell me more about Chart's ESG journey. 
you mentioned it a little bit before about how important it is that you were doing a lot of these things, but it was just telling that story. But tell me more about your ESG journey. Definitely. And it has been a journey. It continues to be a journey, which I think is an important takeaway for everyone who's, who's involved, right? This isn't a, I do a report and then I've checked the box for ESG. It's, it's not that way. It is a journey and we're continuing to evolve and we have a long way to go. But if we looked at ourselves, we would constantly say, all right, we're doing all of this stuff, safety being our number one priority and improving different types of utilization of power in our respective plants and footprints and all of that. And then also helping our customers. So we felt really good of having both sides there. Well, the short answer was a few years back, our shareholders like, you don't have a sustainability report. You don't have, uh, you know, you don't have a set of metrics like SASB, FASB, you know, all the all the variety of metrics out there. And how do you sift through that? That's not our expertise. So we worked with Caitlin and so we hired help and that was really important in our, in getting to where we are today. And we'll continue to utilize that help because there are experts that understand the variety of different types of metrics that are out there. I mean, you could end up with a thousand metrics and that wasn't really what we were going for. So we needed help from experts and then together with an internal team that hit all the way through to team members from our shop floor to our general counsel. So a really wide set of internal resources, again, that diverse set of views, working with the experts helped us package this up and say, here's where our gaps still are. And that gives us a nice roadmap to move forward. I'd say the other thing that we've come a long way on in our journey is around how we think about the climate, the land, the air, and the water, or the claw concept, right? So what do we want to do on each and what don't we want to do on each? You know, what fits really well with what who Chart is and what Chart is as a company? And what is just something that we would be doing for the sake of doing it because that checks a box? And so that's been a really interesting learning. And it's been great to hear our team members' perspectives on, well, we should do this because it's important to us as a company. And as simple as, hey, we give every one of our team members, we have you know, 4,600 people on the chart team. Everybody gets a paid day off once a year to volunteer at a charity of their choice. And that's in addition to you know, PTO and vacation and sick time and holidays and all that. And that's really generated a great feeling amongst our team that they can come back and share, hey, I gave back to the community that we employ people in. And it was a way to do it without spending a lot of money. So things like that, we're really proud of that stuff. Was it difficult to get people on board, especially when he started to kick it off a few years ago? Now, as you said today, there are SMEs, you know, across the company in different positions, but what was it like and how did you get everyone on board? Or maybe everyone was already gung-ho about it and passionate about this and it was just, you know, putting a program together and giving a little structure. Tell me a little bit more about that. So it's interesting because we don't actually talk about it internally as ESG. It's really part of our culture. And so it wasn't hard in that sense. And I, I would I would bet that if you talk to a lot of our team members and you said, tell me about your ESG program, they would kind of look at you with blank stares. But rather, if you said, tell me about your culture and tell me about you know the priorities of the business. So we went about it that way, where we said, all right, you know, you guys all know our four key priorities are safety, be nice to our customers, strong work ethic, and having fun. And all of that really wraps into ESG. So you do have, you know, the subset of people that talk about ESG, but it's really more around how does this fit? And 
that was really important to me was we're going to do this, not because somebody's telling us we have to, but because it fits with what we do every day anyway. We just want you guys to be a part of it. So we went about it in a way where we said we, we're going to create ways for our team to get involved, regardless of where you're located around the world. And we kicked off different contests. So we had a diversity and inclusion tagline contest is one we did. Uh, we have a diversity and inclusion committee that is all comprised of only volunteers from our team. So we have over 70 people on that committee. And then they come up with ways to say, hey, let's get other people involved. And that really kind of comes from the bottom up in terms of all the different ideas that the organization comes up with. I got a kick out of one of them. We have every six to eight weeks, I do a global town hall discussion and kind of give an update on the business. And as part of that, one of the ideas that came back was like, hey, listen, you're talking in English, but how do we translate that for our you know, 500 chart China team members into their local language? So we, we uh, took that feedback and we have a team now that works on the translations and got nice TV screens in the shops. So just little things like that, that people wouldn't necessarily package up in their mind as ESG, but it's all part of that, that culture. And this year, you announced some big targets for carbon reduction. Tell me more about that. Why was it important for CHART to have those public targets? Yeah, it's definitely, it's interesting because it goes back to your question around, you know, the journey. And we really weren't ready to have those targets before this year. Part of it was because we needed to make sure that we knew the jumping off point so that when we put a target out, we could actually measure it versus just making some random target and hoping we got there somehow. So for us, it was about knowing where our starting point has been and how do, how are we going to measure it? So that if somebody wants to peel the onion back, we're really able to articulate very well how this journey is progressing. So it was important to us that we put aggressive targets out there because that drives behavior and we understood kind of the starting point. So I think it's going to be refined over the next 10 years, right? And, and that's really important. This, I think this first decade of the three decades of targets that people have out there is as important as anything because it'll show, can we really make progress as companies in the world of uh, climate reduction and carbon, carbon emission reductions, or, or are we going to have to reevaluate what that means? Some, I've heard from other companies that when they were evaluating whether to announce targets or not, part of the hesitation was one, you know, how much clarity do we have on our roadmap? You know, there's, and there's multiple ways, you know. But the other thing was what I heard with hesitancy on is this target's in the future, many, many years in the future. I may be retired by the time, you know, whether it's the board or the exact, you know, I may be retired by the time that, you know, this has to happen, right, by 2050. Was there any of that kind of discussion? How did you overcome that? So there really was not that hesitancy. And, you know, I think we're also, our company's also a lot of engineers, so they like targets and they like metrics. So that was probably easier than some, some industries. But our view on that, and it's true, right? I mean, there, there's a group of our team members that certainly won't be here in 10, let alone 30 years um, when we're setting these targets. But we also really have a view that it's, if you don't set a target, you'll never start working toward that target. And it's like any metric that you put out there, you know, measure it and that way you'll know where you are against it. And we think that any leadership team that comes behind our current team will feel the same way because they'll at least know what are they, what are they working at 
And if they adjust the target, that's fine, but at least they know where they are on that journey toward it. And I would love to hear kind of what is your vision for the future next five, 10 years for chart as well, you're on your ESG journey? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 I'm just so blessed in the place that we are as a company that we do get to work with customers on their ESG journey too. And so for me, it's really around, we have this wonderful combination of products and technologies that address people's needs for sustainability. And we get this explosive growth associated with it as the macro trends continue in this direction. So I get that nice combination of it's, it's natural for chart and we want to build upon that. I, I also think that it's really important as you're doing, Amanda, to talk about it and have that discussion. And you know, I, I, I use the term or the phrase, make the space for the conversation, because I think that you know, this, this ongoing learning, like we don't have all the answers at all. And we're probably way behind the majority of companies in their ESG journey. So we take that feedback and we have these dialogues and that's how we make ourselves better. And that's really my vision for a chart is to continue to make ourselves better as we profitably grow in the space. We have a really good, diverse board of directors that supports this activity. And that's important as well that you have the buy-in, not just from your team members on a day-to-day basis, but you have the support of the board. And that's something that we're really honored to have a diverse group of board members, but also really huge support so that when we say, hey, we are going to continue to use the experts to help us on ESG, you know, there's not a balking at the cost or anything like that. It's like, yeah, this is part of, this is part of the ecosystem of Chart and who we are and who we want to continue to grow into as a company. I think that's such an interesting point. I think it goes back to governance too, a G of ESG and where we I'm seeing a lot of our clients do this interest of who is on our board, what kind of, besides just a typical matrix of experience and risk management, I think from the time I've met you, you've always had a diverse board. So my assumption is it's been purposeful from day one. Is that right? Yeah. And we, we look at diversity from directors as well as our leadership team of, you know, you have to have the table stakes, right? So you have to have the actual skills that are required to either be on our team or be a director on our board. And so once you get past the table stakes, then it is, how do you fit with us culturally? And, you know, the diversity of views. So whether it's, you know, whether it's diversity of culture or diversity of gender, it, for us, it comes back to evaluating the diversity of viewpoints so that when we are talking about a difficult topic. It's not just everybody is, comes as everybody on the board is a CFO from the oil field. Like that would be a terrible combination, right? So you really do need people that bring experiences that are different and that generates diversity on its own when you're looking for that. And yes, we've all, always had a diverse board and um, we continue to look for those types of directors. We don't do it in a way where we say, all right, we need to go hire a director. We do it on a very ongoing basis where if we find someone that we think would be a good fit, we say, all right, well, we can expand our board size to add this view. And that's something that we've been really flexible on and has worked very well for us. Great. And Jill, tell me about what's coming up, what's exciting and new. Well, we have a multiple different R&D and new product development projects in the pipeline, and they've focused on our specialty area. One that is going to be released here very soon is our liquid hydrogen onboard storage tank. And that's going to be critical around the transportation sector for hydrogen. So 
very, very unique offering. And if anyone's interested, call us. And is that for on the road transport? Is that for maritime, all of the above? Yeah, so this one in particular is for heavy duty trucking and above in terms of transportation sizes. So pretty, pretty neat technology. And we actually used our LNG vehicle tank as our jumping off point for the development of that. So you can kind of see the convergence of the different molecules coming together. It's come a long way. So and there's a long way to go. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I I love the topic and I love what you guys are doing. So thank you. Thank you for uh, the chance to talk today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Global Affairs Associates across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and for the planet.